Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined, as always, by TLS commissioning editor and culture guru, Thea Lenarduzzi. Each week we'll be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS, plus arts and cultural events. On this week's show, this is the week in which the American Republican Party is set to confirm its nomination for president. It is therefore timely to debate the rise of Donald Trump. In the TLS this week, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Ford writes a personal essay about the man and his status as a symptom of an American malaise. The cover image of the paper is quite something. It's a caricature by the inimitable Gerald Scarf, well worth looking out for. Also coming up, we'll be discussing the history of modern Ireland with Oxford professor Roy Foster, and we shall consider the purpose of historical fiction with Professor Norma Clarke. Finally, as ever, we shall end with a poem. For our Irish-flavoured edition, it is Mycenae Lookout by Seamus Heaney, first published in the TLS in 1994. First to Ireland, this week's TLS has a selection of Irish-themed reviews and essays, including on Oscar Wilde and James Joyce. But the central piece, perhaps, is Professor Roy Foster's review of the Princeton history of modern Ireland. He finds this a vital contribution to Irish self-examination at a key moment in the country's history. It comes in the centenary year of the Easter Rising, which was formally commemorated this April. Roy Foster, on a line that is a little bit wobbly in parts, joins Thea and me now. Roy, we're living in strange political times. Indeed, later in the programme, we're going to be discussing the rise of Donald Trump and his simplistic post-fact politics. But your piece actually, in many ways to me, felt like a welcome recognition that the story of modern Ireland is now being told in a more sensitive and complicated and nuanced tone than ever before. How do you think we got there? Well, the phrase we're using is complicate the narrative, I suppose, rather than accentuate the positive. There used to be this rather simplistic approach to Irish history, heroes and villains, black and white. And it was also a very politics-dominated narrative and a very male-dominated narrative. You ask how we've got here, Stig. In one way, it's that Irish historiography is a pretty sophisticated operation. And I think ever since probably the 60s, Irish historians have been attending to what's been happening in other historical, corner, historiographical corners of the world, notably France and America, and have been looking at especially Irish social and economic history in a more complex way than it used to be looked at, in which the villain isn't always British government. And the way that things are arrived at is as much by model as by malevolence. 
The other, I suppose, inevitable aspect of changing the way we've looked at our history is, of course, what's been going on in the northeast of the island since the late 1960s. So just at that time when new historical paths were being prospected, awful things were being done in the island in the name of that very simplistic view of history which I mentioned earlier. So in some ways you're living in a world where even writing about history has real-life consequences. You're, you're, you're very conscious in a perhaps way that writing about English history is no longer the case, where what you're writing about, the context is real, and the potential for interpretations and, and opinions have real-world consequences as well. Yeah, what you say is very true about living in a world where history goes on mattering and goes on happening. That past is always alive. This, of course, is very much emblematized by the decade of commemorations that Ireland is immersed in. We're sort of, we're, we're only halfway through it. I mean, it's the Sinn Féin sweeping the board election in 1918, the Anglo-Irish War, which will be an interesting one, the treaty, and the, indeed the civil war, which followed the treaty. The centenaries of all these events are coming up, and there will be a bonanza of events. Compare England, where, to my astonishment, the centenary of the glorious revolution on which English politics were based for so long, just sort of um, cluttered by with hardly a nod. I did wonder, and I should say it does sound a bit like you're being swept up in a, in a wind of some sort as well, but I, I was wondering if you thought that the shift from this kind of more dramatic form of history to a more complex one, accepting of mixed motives, has successfully fed into the commemorations that you're, that you're talking about there. Yeah, I think it has. The government did appoint a pretty heavyweight panel of advisory historians who were very keen that the mistakes wouldn't be made, which were made in the, in the commemoration of the 1798 rising in 1998, when it was all wrapped up into peace process speak in, I think, a very politically um, angled way, which was interesting for the terms of present politics, but led to a lot of pretty bad, uncontextualized and highly anachronistic history. This is what hasn't been happening this year. Can we talk briefly about uh, religion? Because one of the things that comes clearly out of your, your piece, Roy, is that is there a sense that the voice and the influence of the Catholic Church has quietened of late? You refer in the piece to a coruscating essay on the history of Irish religion, and you call the exploration of the subject kind of despairingly funny. And I was just wondering what made you despair and what made you laugh about it? There is a sense that religion is less of a factor than even it was 20 years ago. What made me despair was the memory of growing up in the late 50s and the 60s in a country which was almost an effective theocracy. We're not supposed to use the word because it wasn't a constitutionally defined theocracy, but when you read the stuff that's coming out now about how the dreadful Archbishop of Dublin, McQuaid, um, had all social legislation run past them by acquiescent members in the government to see if it was okay by Catholic teaching. You know, this kind of thing was happening. I grew up in the era of banned books, among whom were, of course, some of, if not most, of the greatest writers of the 20th century, as well as brilliant new writers like Edna O'Brien and John McGahan. That now seems like an absolute other age. And it's not just because of a worldwide uh, wave of secularism. It, it is because of the loss of the Catholic Church's moral and social authority. Um, it's also, I think, and I've written about this elsewhere, the outgrowth of the very strong movement of Irish feminism from the 1970s, which changed everything and I think changed the, the ground rules of the way Irish society worked. Um, it also opened up an approach to 
looking at how the church's own history had affected the history of the country. And as you say, um, certainly the, the volume hasn't shied away from any of the of the more controversial aspects of, of the history and in attempting to reconsider and rebalance conventionally more sort of black and white chapters in the history, such as the famine or, or the deeply problematic concepts, such as the notion of whether there's such a thing as an endemic, endemic violence or, or a lure of violence in Irish history. Um, it certainly yeah. sounds like a very very difficult balancing act. Um, I was wondering how the work has been has been received since being published. I mean, it's it's been published by a US university. Well, Princeton University Press has a particular interest in Irish history, and I think both editors of this collection were themselves Princeton authors with previous books, and so there was a logic in that. Uh, but it, if what you're implying here is that it had to be an American press to produce such a book, that's absolutely not, not the case. Not only small Irish presses, but very large British presses have been publishing interesting, suggestive, path-breaking stuff on Irish history for decades. I mean, Oxford, U- Oxford University Press is one of the major publishers of Irish history. Can I ask quite um, a specific question about one of the essays you mention, in which the writer of the essay emphasises the unnoticed importance of road surfacing in Irish Irish economic history. I'm, I'm imagining it, an account which moves from the, the maybe the, the rough and uneven famine roads to the slick, smooth, tarmac ones funded by the EU. And as you kind of move from one economic sovereign to another, can you can you lead us into that at all? Yes, that's quite true. But I think what that essay by Andy Bielenberg was also, it, it was an aside of his which amused me and that's I why I, I took it up. But I do remember myself the kind of roads that one grew up with in the mid-20th century. Charming with grass growing down the middle and melting tar in the summer, but clearly an impediment to economic advance. And it has been one of the revolutions of um, the recent Irish economic history, what Europe has, has given us. This is the modern the history of modern Ireland, and we are now right bang up to date with... Brexit, which will happen, it'll happen in some form or other over the next five years. Uh, And I think one of the really poorly considered aspects of the whole EU referendum debate in this country was its impact on Anglo-Irish relations. I think people really failed to to consider the potential impact properly. It was mentioned a couple of times, but it was never really reflected upon. Now Brexit has been voted upon by Britain. Where where, where do you think that leaves um, our our relations? What, what, What do you foresee in the future? I couldn't agree with you more about the criminal neglect of the importance of this issue. And the fact that one of the people who put herself most forward on the Brexit side was the, I believe she must be intellectually challenged, um, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, who seemed not to see that this was the most divisive issue conceivable in Northern Ireland and how she thought she could continue as any kind of effective Secretary of State and take that position amazes me. Cross-border trade is going to be tremendously complicated and indeed um, in, in some cases ruined and already seeing this happening. Irish diplomatic representation is very good and I think both the Irish and the British sides through various Anglo-Irish fora are, are working together to try and minimise the knock-on effect of all this. Where it will affect matters, I think, very deleteriously is in Northern Ireland where it's, as I say, a deeply divisive issue, but also it could be an economically disastrous one. My great guru, Hubert Butler, who wrote wonderful essays about Ireland, wrote back in the 1950s that the hope for the border was that it would someday float away like a sticking plaster off a wound that has healed. 
and since the 1990s on the peace process and since the joint membership in the EU of Britain and Ireland, this has almost, certainly in economic terms, happening. Brexit totally reverses that happy development and I feel extremely depressed about it. Roy, thank you so much uh, for a fascinating take that on that. And I think you're right, it's extraordinary that this debate wasn't had two months before the referendum rather than having to pick up the pieces after the referendum. But Roy, thank you so much for the piece. It's a lovely piece in the TLS this week, The Princeton History of Modern Ireland. And thank you so much for joining us now. Thank you, Stig, and to you. Our fiction section this week has a wonderfully enthusiastic review by Norma Clark of Francis Spufford's Golden Hill, a novel set in 18th century pre-revolutionary America. The novel, written firmly in the tradition of Stern, Smollett and the Fieldings, tells the story of Mr Smith, an Englishman in New York, who blunders about spreading misery in pursuit of a mysterious purpose not revealed until the final pages. It sounds like a hugely enjoyable romp, but a romp with brains and literary sensibilities. Uh, I'm going to be trying to find a copy for myself after this. Norma Clark joins Thea and me now. I suppose the most simple question, and I, I got this sense from the book, why is this such a good novel? Oh, it's a good novel because it's full of such life. I was thinking as I was pondering this this morning that Francis Spufford, he writes as if people have never written novels before. So you have this sense that everything is fresh and exciting, um, as if he's got the whole, a whole new world to roam in. Of course, the word new is very important. This is a novel about New York at a time when it is new. But it's also a novel set at the period when the novel itself was new. And that's the sense you get from it. You get this tremendous sort of effervescent excitement about using words, about describing places, about doing things with character and narrative as if no one's done it before. Uh, It's a piece of historical fiction, but there's nothing staid or still or, as it were, already known about it. It's as if he's making it all up as he goes along. And for the reader, that's tremendous because it operates both at the level of the overall narrative, but also in every paragraph. For, a, for someone who knows about the period, another pleasure in the book is the recognition, the pleasures of recognition, and then a bit more, which is an analysis of it, which is, you know, I use that word, but that by no means a laboured analysis. It's the way in which he uses description to make you think a bit more about things that he's describing in their historical context. And you talk about the almost the, the literariness of it. He he mm. knows he's very much writing in the tradition of, of Stern and Smollett who were developing the form of the novel at the period in which uh, this novel was set. Is, is that sort of self-consciousness done well? Because often, in a sense, in the sort of postmodern writing, that self-consciousness can be a real bore to the reader, in, in, in my yeah, view. This sounds absolutely. like it's, it's sort of integrated into the, into the whole. Absolutely. It's, there, is, there is none of that self-consciousness. There's just a sort of um, exhilaration and pleasure in doing it. It's like, you know, he's being fielding rather than trying to give us a kind of fielding, but, it, you know, but not imitating. It's not static. It's just full of that kind of life that, that you find uh, when you read 
Henry Fielding, or, or Smollett especially, actually, the epigraph um, that opens the novel is from Smollett. I'm in, I think I'm interested in how here, as in Red Plenty, has spuffered some dramatic history of the, techn- of the period of technological advance in the Soviet Union mm. in the mm. um, late 1950s, how mm. Spufford doesn't follow the conventions of his literary ancestors like Stern and, and so on in naming his novels after their generally male protagonists, you know, Tristram yeah. Shandy, David Simple, Roderick Random, and so yeah. on, but rather he names the novels after a period or an idea or, I suppose, mm. an, illu- an illusion of Red Plenty mm. and Golden Hill, is it? I mean, because both of these books are set about 20 years before a big bubble is burst. That's interesting. Well, I haven't read Red Plenty, so I can't, I can't speak to that with any sort of knowledge. But certainly we have here uh, a novel set 20 or 30 years before the bubble bursts. And so we bring that knowledge to it. You, you feel as you're reading that the writer trusts you to know certain things, and it, but at the same time that it doesn't matter if you don't that you can take from it the bits that resonate with you and you can leave the rest. And, of course, that makes for very good rereading, I think, as well, because once you've got to the end of this novel and you've understood some of it and you do need to get to the end to understand quite where it's going, uh, which I must not reveal, once you get to the end, then you see the larger picture and you can go back, like you know, as with all novels that have a lot of, suspense the reader reads very quickly often for the story and then you go back and you see the kind of detail that's been put in there and it's a different sort of pleasure the rereading is a different sort of pleasure rereading is one of the great pleasures in life i think absolutely well and it's different because you you read with knowledge and then you're reading i suppose in a bit to a certain extent you're reading as the writer read, you know, because writers go through many, many drafts and they read and reread what they've written all the time. Once you know the whole picture, then you're doing a little bit more what the writer is doing when they're redrafting, which is you're looking at the detail and you're saying, oh, yes, that fits. Oh, now I understand. Uh, you, you say you talked a minute ago about resonances to, to the modern world, and you conclude the review by saying the old coexists with the new 1746 with 2016. And I mm. wonder, uh, as we think broadly about historical novels, is that the function of them, to somehow speak to the present while rooting about in the past? I think it's inevitable to a certain extent. You know, every writer is writing out of the period that they live in with all its assumptions, all its knowledge and its ignorance. And some are more conscious of that than others. And I suppose, if pressed, I would say that I think it's something that writers of historical fiction nowadays tend to do a bit more. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to have to stand up in court and defend that very strongly. But that's my, that's my sense, is that you do get more of this one eye on the present consciously rather than unconsciously. And this definitely, this definitely has it, in particular in the main theme that is running through, which, which I can talk about without revealing things that shouldn't be revealed. The main theme is money and the instability of money, the ways in which the the new society is forming itself around money, trade, speculation, a great deal of that. If you if you if you know the early eighteenth century, a great deal of that makes you think about things like you know, the Bank of England was was founded in the sixteen nineties 
this novel takes place in 1746, one of the characteristics of that period was the invention of new financial instruments that people didn't really understand. And some people were able to get very rich by buying stocks and shares. Uh, And there was a famous, you used the word bubble earlier, there was a famous financial crash, the South Sea Bubble in 1720. And lots of people were ruined by it, but also lots of people had made lots of money. And the climate of opinion then was very like the um, sort of climate around ideas to do with money that we've seen in the past couple of decades in this country. In the past couple of weeks, I, I would have thought. Yeah, well, yeah let's, let's not go there. But I was actually, I was actually reading um, a letter, Alexander Pope, the poet, was um, was one of the people who invested in the South Sea bubble. And um, there was a, a letter of his that I was reading where he was explaining that it actually, that it was ignominious not to try to be rich, that, that actually it was morally the right thing to do <coughs> to try to be rich. He sounds in like Tony he, Blair. Yeah, in what, exactly, in what he called this age of hope and golden mountains, golden mountains. Now, I don't know if um, Francis Spufford was thinking about that when he named his novel Golden Hill. I mean, Golden Hill is the name of of a street in New York. But an age of hope and golden mountains seemed to me to be very close to what Francis Spufford is describing. I wonder, and I'm interested in Thea's view on this as well, is historical fiction now a, a respectable genre? Because I grew up on it in lots of ways, and it was always a genre of escapism and, and sort of pulpish. You know, I, I remember reading mm. as a kid Dennis Wheatley books set in the the 18th century, the sort of Napoleonic <laughs> yeah. Wars, and you look back on them, and they were yeah. they were they were very functionally written. But they here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Were pulp, they were trash. 
Um, yeah. And, and Elmore Leonard, there's a great quote in, in his Ten Rules for Writing. He talks about a character in his, one of his books tell how she used to write historical romances full of rapes and adverbs. The point <laughs> he's right. making is that it's sort of over-sensationalised and, and kind of cluttered and crass. Yeah. Uh, and there's some pleasure in that. Do yeah. you think we've, it's got more sophisticated? It's more oh, respectable? I well, I, I think some of the, you know, to use your word, respectable practitioners have won prizes and yeah, you know, and that's uh, one mark of um, of great achievement. You know, Hilary Mantel. Hilary Mantel takes it to another level. I was thinking as you were talking about the Napoleonic Wars of Patrick O'Brien. Yeah. And uh, you know, and the wonderful, wonderful novels of you know, chaps see. And actually, there's some of that the sort of vitality of Patrick O'Brien. I think in in Francis Buffett's novel. I don't know. I mean, clearly it has become more respectable. I have to say, you know, it's not an area that I've given a huge amount of thought to as a genre in itself. I guess the, um, the, the kind of the mild disdain, I suppose, that's often reserved for for the genre is sort of linked to the idea that good sales must denote poor quality. That's right. Um, and, you know, once you add to, to, to that, the you know, all the adaptations for theatre and film and TV that historical fiction mm. seems to, to lead mm. to, it, it, it results mm. in a genre that is seen as being very widely and variously consumed. And I guess it's, it's yeah. the last word that causes so much trouble. But then good mm. historical fiction can do the same sort of thing that the 18th century sentimental journey kind of genre that that Spufford writes in a style of did. It can merge what people mm. like to think mm. of as high and low art. The beauty of the mm. thing being that you can read it on a number of levels mm. if you want to, but you don't have mm. to. You can just enjoy it for a romp. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. You know, you know the novel itself has traditionally come in for so much condemnation. I suppose that too has changed. So so when you ask, you know, has historical fiction uh, become more respectable? One could always ask, also ask, you know, has fiction become more respectable? Are we, are we less tempted to just dismiss it out of hand and more willing to see you know, what kinds of good come from it? I get rather tired of the sort of automatic dismissal of so-called low fiction. I mean, I think you know, fiction is for... Fiction does all sorts of things, teaches you and tells you all sorts of things and gives all sorts of different pleasures. It's a resource in a variety of ways. Norm, amen to that. that, that and that's probably a good thing to <laughs> yeah. point to, to leave it on, the, 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 the value of fiction <laughs> in its entirety. Uh, Norma Clark, thank you so much for joining us. It's a lovely review of Francis Spufford's book in the TLS this week. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, thank Norma. You. See, I, I think the, the, the value of the romp... <laughs> Should there be in defence of a romp? Because I love that about historical fiction. And it sounds to me the good thing about that Spuffer book is you can read it as a straightforward linear narrative that gets you to the end with full mm. of period detail. I mean, I'm, I can't say that I read historical fiction as a, you know, an impassioned... I kind of got that sense. <laughs> ...follower yeah. of it. But, but, I, but, I but what, I do, what I do like about it and what I do think is, is very valuable is the idea of putting the individual back into history. And so putting the kind of the complex knot of emotions and conflict in one man or one woman's head back into history. Yeah. Um, you know, and that sounds a lot like it's imp- approaching the kind of, you know fiction teaches us how to empathise kind of argument. And in, in a way it is, but it's also just a way of charting how what one person does to another, you know, the kind of the effects that that has. Yeah. And and that is that is history. It's not it's not objective. No, I think that's right. And also it gives you this, 
a route of escapism, which I think is important in fiction. In a world where critical theory can be overpowering, the, the basic premise of a fiction to take you somewhere else in time or place, and I think that's important. That might be hopelessly naive on my part. <laughs> I was also thinking, actually, when you said about how Elmore Leonard said about a character writing historical romances full of rapes and adverbs, yeah. which is suggestive of kind of sensationalism, the sensationalism of the genre. It totally made me think of someone like Donald Trump and his his speeches and kind of the you now know the freewheeling the, the freewheeling approach to, to to fact and how you know you can be doing that in in the making of history in the present as yes. well as. Is there a more fictional character anywhere in fiction than Donald Trump? <laughs> Silvio Berlusconi, maybe. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, the, the, the American Berlusconi. Well, we are about to talk. You're going to have to go, so you're not going to be able to talk no, no, to uh, Richard Ford, who has written a piece for us, and we're going to talk to him shortly. But, uh, yeah, it's about, in some ways, you're right, it's about the fictionality of a real person. Mm, and the value of the truth. How yeah. valuable is it? What's, it? what's its place? And the answer to Donald Trump is very little, I'd imagine. <laughs> exactly. It's said that we are now living in a post-fact, post-expertise world of politics. The world, in other words, of one Donald J. Trump. In the TLS this week, the novelist Richard Ford, author of, among other things, the wonderful Bascom trilogy of books, gives a personal insight into Trump and his America. Ford writes about Trump's status as a self-confected, ridiculous figure of unreality and links him to the condition of modern America. He is, in Ford's words, a gaudy, tarnished symptom of our American disease. The fault lies not just with Trump in all his bewigged, mini-fingered glory, but the American people. Ford concludes it's we who are guilty of not having something better on our minds. Uh, Richard Ford joins me now, I'm delighted to say. So, Richard, maybe it's worth starting there. What is the disease of which Trump is the symptom, do you think? It's a disease, I think, that Americans have always, to some extent, suffered. It's a disease that comes right out of our founding fathers' declaration that we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which rather sounds like a guarantee to us. And so we feel at ease to, to be uninterested in governance and in government. We feel unease about making the people who run our country be the despicable other in order that we be able to concentrate on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, t- taking an active interest in government seems like, seems like something that's foreign to, to most Americans. Oh, so is it, is it a sense and of... That, I, I was going to say that that foreignness, that sense that we feel entitled to not to pay attention, has become sort of malaise, which has landed us really at a precipice. Well, one, one argument for Trump, though, I mean, over here we've just seen the vote to leave the European Union, which was arguably the first triumph for a kind of insurgent, anti-establishment vote. It was, you know, lots of noise always happens around any election, and there's always anti-establishment characters, but they never seem to quite get over the line. But we saw in this country a win for Brexit, a win to leave the European Union, which felt like the first time one of those nationalistic insurgent arguments actually won the day. Do you think there's a parallel there for Trump, that that's the sort of person, that's the sort of motivation he could be capitalising upon? Well, in, in the United Kingdom, what I understand is, is that the vote to, to leave the, the EU is, is, is rather a ver- represents a variegated strain of belief in the United Kingdom, which is to say that there are some bigots, yep, and there's some xenophobes, yep, 
and there are some people who are doing it for what they perceive to, to be nationalistic reasons, and some people who are doing it for matters of the economy. And someone was able to unify all of those. I don't think America is as unifiable as that, such that Trump could be able to bring all these strands together into one unified vote. I mean, for, for, for one thing, Trump alienates women. Trump alienates Hispanics. Trump alienates African, African-Americans. And that turns out to be a considerable part of, of, of the polity in the United States. So, so, he, so no, I, I, don't, I don't think that that is actually going to happen. I was listening to the news this morning, and when you just simply crudely add up all of the negatives against Trump, they actually, in terms of votes that will be cast, outnumber considerably irrespective of how the, how the media are playing it. He, does, he doesn't have enough votes to win. So who is voting for him, Richard, in, in your view? <laughs> what sort of person would vote for, for Trump? Because at one hand, you look at him and he's a kind of, not just ridiculous, but a sort of self-evidently ridiculous figure. He doesn't care about the truth, as you make clear in your piece. It's not that he, just that he doesn't tell the truth. He doesn't care about being caught out telling the truth. So lots of ways the normal rules of public discourse don't apply to him. So how does he remain appealing in that? Well, one of the ways that he remains appealing is is that we have a uh, a staged system of of of, elect, of electing people. That is to say, you have a system of primaries, which then devolve into the general election. And I think that there will be a, a remarkable change in the mood of the electorate when the general election comes around. It's it's one thing to cast, as I, as I think probably a lot of Brexit voters did, without without the luxury of having a primary. A, a lot of people cast a, um, what you might call a protest vote in favor of Trump. But when it gets right down to it, I think fewer will actually go to the polling place and, and vote for him. But, but that's really not to answer your question. To create a kind of specific demographic slice into which all the Trump supporters will be dumped is virtually impossible for the reasons that I was describing when I was talking probably outside my understanding uh, about the Brexit voters. A lot of people use Trump to express whatever are their frustrations, and their frustrations are quite different across this vast continent we have here. I mean, people in Minnesota and people in Montana and people in Oregon don't even recognize in the same way that Washington, D.C. is the capital of the country in which they reside. Not that way in the United Kingdom. I mean, there may be a lot of resentment in Birmingham and and in the north, in Northumberland, for, for, for London, but I think that they do still recognize it as the titular capital of the country. That's an interesting, an interesting question. That so, where does this leave Hillary? If if you're right, and uh, you know, I think you are, but I've been wrong very recently about lots of things to do with the new political world we live in. If you're right about Trump as not a significant enough figure to get this done, that leaves the job Fodemir to to Hillary Clinton. Where, where do you stand on her? What sort of unified figure is she? Well, I had a Bernie Sanders sticker on my car all spring. And then when it became evident to me that Bernie Sanders was not going to get enough votes and not be able to corral the Democratic Party machinery in his favor, I went out and very, very carefully took my sticker off. <laughs> now I'm thinking I ought to put it back on again, because I'm not going to vote for Mrs. Clinton. It seemed to me that in the wake of the disclosures by the FBI 
disclosures about her lying to the populace, the disclosures about her sense of entitlement to run the State Department, as important a department as it is in the United States government, that she is actually not a worthy candidate, and that what has happened in the United States is that the political system has given us two unworthy candidates to be president. And I don't see why I have to be victimized by that. Find either another candidate to write in something hopelessly on my ballot, but not to just simply eat the plate that's put in front of me. Even though in doing so you might open the route for Trump to go to the White House, is, is Hillary not the lesser of two evils? Hillary is another of two evils, I'm coming to believe. But, you know, I was also reading something in, in the New York Times to the point that if Trump were to be elected president and I would never vote for him and I do not want him to be president, he might have the unexpected effect of bringing the Republican Party back toward the middle of its uh, of its his historical positionings. I mean, it's far to the right now. It's far in the hands of, of zealots and evangelicals and nutcases. And while Trump is not an evangelical and not the same kind of nutcase, he is also kind of practical in a way. I don't think it's the kind of practicality we normally rely on to become president of the United States, but he's at least the devil we don't know. Yeah, or, have, or is that the PR that we've fallen for then? Because in some ways, you know, he paints this picture of a man who's made a lot of money, although he's really got most of his money from his dad. He paints himself as a guy who always wins lawsuits, but when you look into that, he hasn't won that many. And therefore he feels like someone who can get the job done because he's lived in the uh, in the very fierce world of American business. I wonder how much that, that withstands scrutiny as well. As you know from the piece that I wrote, I, I don't think it would stand scrutiny at all. But as but as a way to turn the political system upside down like a like a pepper shaker, it might it might be interesting. I mean, hell, it's the only choice that we have. And I reiterate, I ain't voting for him. Well, one question also occurs: we we've just to, to, um, this week um, in the UK, learned we're going to have a female prime minister again for the yes. second time in our history. America's obviously never had a female president. Do you buy into anything? that the symbol of a female president serves a purpose? Because one of the, the lessons, perhaps, yeah. of the Obama years, to us in the UK, he stands as a great iconic figure of what can happen when a black man can become uh, the most powerful man in the world. He stands for more than he is, and there's some great worth in that. Would the existence of a woman as president make a tangible benefit to American society? Yes, and I, I think it would be extremely good to have a woman in terms of American history. And I don't think it will be as ground-shaking as it was to have an African-American, and it has been to have an African-American. And I, and I, I want to say full, uh, full out that, that I think that President Obama has been on the ground, hands-on, an extremely good president, and almost a noble president, just as much as he has been a success. As a, as a but has he, left the con- has he bequeathed the country that is as torn by racial division as ever. I mean, I once had a conversation with his speechwriter and he said, yeah, we've not managed to fix race uh, as an issue. Maybe we expected too much of him. But, you know, looking in the um, incidents in Minnesota, in Dallas, um, it doesn't seem that having this iconic black president has necessarily healed the wounds of racial division in, in the United States. Was that was that too much of a hope, do you think? Nobody in his right mind thought that he could or would. I think that the strife that we are seeing on our streets in America is just strife that has been going on 
for decades and decades and decades and has now simply been uncovered and made evident and that and that and that it it's not that racial divisiveness is worse or that racial injustice is worse. It is just that what was always there is now much more in our in our sight. And and for that I think there is little doubt that President Obama is is the catalytic agent for it, but it was a, it was a it was a catalyst that was going to have to happen eventually if we were ever going to get beyond it. Yeah. So 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 I mean I think President Obama, insofar as he has made sunlight be the best disinfectant here, has done us all a good turn. Even if on a day like this we bow our heads and and and, and just groan about our country. Richard, thank you so much for, for joining me today, and thank you so much for your piece. Uh, I, I enjoyed the notion in it. You talk about things you couldn't do with Donald Trump, like talk about, talk, like, like talk about your surgery or your divorce or go fishing in the backwoods in Maine, but you could go to a mixed martial arts event or to go and see Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, or, or Ted Nugent. I think you would much prefer Ted Nugent than yeah, Bruce Springsteen. Well, congratulations to you on your eight-week anniversary. Uh, thank you so much, Richard. And, and look, uh, the piece, um, just so you know, Gerald Scarf has done the cover for it. It's a, it's a picture of, of Trump in orange, wearing a sort of Superman outfit with snakes coming out of his hair, and the snakes are labelled bigot, wall builder, divisive, hate, sexist and racist. Well, I only wish that Mr. Trump were as obviously evil as that portrays him to be, because then we wouldn't even have to worry with him at all. I mean, you know, as I said to you, if the devil went around dressed in a, a red outfit with horns and a tail, we wouldn't get near him. Trump looks actually much more banal than that. Oh, very true. Richard Ford, thank you so much for joining me. My great pleasure. That is almost all we have time for this week. Thanks to Thea, Richard Ford, Norma Clark and Roy Foster. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We will be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale. It's easy to spot. It has a giant caricature of Donald Trump in his underpants. With the pieces we have discussed today, plus... Osman Durrani on Goethe, Terry Apter on Jenny Diskey's beautiful memoir, Jeremy Minot on the truth about John James Audubon, Kaya Gench on Oscar Wilde's family influences, Jerry Kimber on James Joyce and Italo Svevo, Richard Betts on climate change, and Craig Rain on the work of Georgia O'Keeffe at the Tate Modern. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions, and follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, at the TLS. But finally, read by poetry guru and TLS managing editor Robert Potts, here is a poem first published in the TLS in 1994. Later, the poem was republished in Haney's collection The Spirit Level as one of a suite of poems making delicate parallels between the aftermath of the Trojan War and the aftermath of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, where the peace process had begun its faltering steps under the then British Prime Minister John Major. The poem is narrated by a soldier on a watchtower reflecting on the fragile situation. He is scornful of the posturing rhetoric of many of the participants whose vanity and vengefulness presage the failure first of adequate language and then of peace itself. The final image of eroticism and violence grimly anticipates further civil and fratricidal conflict. Here then is Seamus Heaney. Mycenae Lookout by Seamus Heaney Cities of Grass Fort walls, the dumbstruck palace. I'd come to with the night wind on my face, agog, alert again, but far, far less focused on victory than I should have been. 
still isolated in an old disdain of clacks who always needed to be seen and heard as the true Argives. Mouth athletes, quoting the oracle and quoting dates, petitioning, accusing, taking votes. No element that should have carried weight out of the grievous distance would translate. Our war stalled in the pre-articulate. The little violets' heads bowed on their stems. The pre-dawn gossamers, all dew and scrim and starlace, it was more through them I felt the beating of the huge time wound we lived inside. My soul wept in my hand when I would touch them. My whole being rained down on myself. I saw cities of grass, valleys of longing, tombs, a wind-swept brightness. And far off, in a hilly, ominous place, small crowds of people watching as a man jumped a fresh earth wall and another ran, amorously, it seemed, to strike him down. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.